Welcome to Triple Threat Theater. Triple Threat Theater. Triple Threat Theater. However, I believe there is a more immediate threat. Thousands and thousands of feet of film consumed. Hours and hours of work expended by technicians. And once it's been erased and shredded, it can be done all over again. As all of you know, I've devoted much of my life to convincing the world that travel through film was not only possible, but necessary to survive. Tonight, seduction, murder, triple threat theater. I'm Jody Axberger. <laughs> and I'm Ryan Miller. Millsy, tonight, mm-hmm. Lady Killer, MD. We have 1987's Fatal Attraction, 1992's Basic Instinct, 1998's A Perfect Murder. Get it? The MD in Lady Killer MD stands for Michael Douglas. <laughs> Michael Douglas putting in the work. I think I was probably feeling pretty clever when I came up with that title way back when. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty good, for sure. <laughs> Our boy, uh, MD himself, quite the career, wouldn't you say? Especially when it comes to this whole genre, I feel. of. Yeah, I mean, these movies aren't exactly the same. They're all thrillers, for sure. But um, I, so I had seen Fatal Attraction and Basic Instinct before. I had never seen A Perfect Murder. Just glancing at A Perfect Murder and kind of half knowing what it was just in passing, mm-hmm. it felt like it fit in. But um, he's definitely more the villain in that one, where he's a little more of a victim in the other two. I mean, it's kind of middle of the road and basic instincts, so we kind of run the gamut. But, I mean, he's not necessarily a good person in any of them, but... I mean, he's hot trash in Fatal Attraction. We'll get to that. Yeah. (laughs) And then he's just, maybe, basic instinct, he's probably like... Technically, like the closest to being like a, d- a decent guy that just gets caught up. Yeah, maybe. I mean, he's also a shitty dude in that too, but <laughs> probably not as bad as he is in Fail Attraction. And then, yeah, he's an outright villain in A Perfect Murder. So yeah. the guy's got range, Mills. <laughs> uh, had you seen any of these before? I was the exact opposite of you. I've seen A Perfect Murder and not the other two. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, I remember. When, um, I guess around the time we really got into, or I really got into DVD had, I think I had gone to like the local library and they were selling a bunch of like tapes and we bought a bunch and one of them was a perfect murder. And like during my transition to, from VHS to DVD, I was kind of doing what I'm doing now with DVD with the switch to Blu-ray, where if there's movies that I like uh, that I have on DVD uh, that I don't have or can't get on Blu-ray. I still have the DVD copies. And I hadn't mm-hmm. seen A Perfect Murder, but like I feel like I hung on to it for quite a while into the DVD era because I was like, well, I own it and I kind of want to see it. So since I have the VHS, I'll just eventually get around to watching it and then you know, eventually just got rid of it because it was like, oh, VHS, who wants this? Mm. So had many opportunities to watch it in the past and just never did. But until tonight. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I did the like, what are your like prior to the show, prior to this episode, prior to watching these movies, like what kind of a relationship or fandom did you have with uh, Michael Douglas? Like, 
How did you feel about the guy? What were hmm. your thoughts and opinions? I guess he's just like one of those names that's been around forever. Without looking at the back catalog, I feel like my favorite Michael Douglas movie is probably like The Game, Far mm-hmm. and Away. Uh, I always liked that movie. I mean, yeah, I knew him from Perfect Murder. I forget. I feel like he just pops up so much. I mean, kind of here nor there. I would never call myself a fan. Yeah. But I guess he's like a competent to talented actor you know <laughs> yeah i also have been a fan of the game for a long time uh i also like the movie falling down a lot that he's in i've seen it maybe just the one time many moons ago so yeah um it's been a while and then you know had seen fatal attraction and basic instinct maybe only one time each before this and had seen like romancing the stone way back, but mm-hmm. and of course he's now in like the Ant Man movies. Never would have called myself like a big fan or anything. Like I feel like there's certain actors who are like household names and like I'm familiar with and have seen stuff with them, but like have never really sat up and taken notice or paid attention to like their career. Mm-hmm. Uh, guys like you know a. Uh, like a Kevin Costner or something like that. Like I've seen stuff with him, but I'm not like a huge fan, but he's like a leading man, you know, middle-aged guy yeah. when I was growing up. And uh, I mean, this kind of thing happens a lot when we do these shows because you're watching three somehow linked movies in a short period of time. But I found myself watching these three movies back to back to back being like, wow, man, Michael Douglas is awesome. Like he's really good. Yeah, he really is. I mean, I'm, now I'm looking at the back catalog. I mean, he basically had more or less a movie every year for 20 years, the <laughs> 80s and 90s. So, yeah, um, not a lot I've seen. I've seen Wall Street. I don't really remember. Same. Never saw Black Rain, but I'm very familiar with the poster for whatever reason. Yeah, that one's pretty good. Uh, I saw that maybe within the past decade for the first time. I don't know who in the Daxberger household, but I feel like I've seen The War of the Roses a few times. Yeah, that one is like a title I know, but couldn't tell you anything about it. I don't remember much, but I feel like that's something I've probably seen at least two or three times for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, Falling Down I saw and enjoyed, but haven't seen it in quite a while. Yeah, The Ghost in the Darkness I definitely watched a couple times back around the time it came out on VHS, but haven't seen it in a long time now. Yeah, I'd say probably Far and Away the Game would be my favorite. Yeah. Wonder Boys is one of those ones that I feel like was talked about when it came out, but like at that time, probably what, late 90s, early 2000s, didn't seem like my kind of movie. I was too busy rewatching Boondock Saints and Fight Club over and over right. again. Yeah, this was that was 2000. So. <laughs> but like now I'm very interested in seeing. And then I actually just caught up with Traffic for the first time ever like last year. Picked up oh. the uh, Criterion Blu-ray and gave it a watch and really liked it, so... I saw that, I feel like, around the time it came out. Is it, I can't remember, is it all drug-related, like drug yeah, running? Mm-hmm. Or yeah. yeah, it's like like four different points of view on, like, it's like politicians, the cops, the cartels, and, like, users of drugs. It's like all of them crisscrossing paths. and Gotcha. So, uh, yeah, I mean, he's got quite the career, but he certainly uh, carved out a bit of a niche here with the... Uh, seductive murders yeah the he seems drawn to these kind of thrillery potentially erotic movies 
Like, um, just, you know, we'll get into it more when we talk about the individual movies, but like Fatal Attraction and Basic Instinct, he was like on board, like from the jump with those movies and was like a part in getting them made. I don't know as much about A Perfect Murder. That one, I feel like it doesn't have the fanfare the other two do, so there wasn't as much out there for me to read about it. But the fact that he was like behind getting the other two made makes me feel like he's got an interest in these kind of movies or something. I don't know. Just because there's, I mean, they're close enough in time. Oh, they're five years apart. Yeah. I feel like, so I guess really just kind of a general idea what the stories were. Or just like the the genre they would fall in and who was in it. Like I knew Glenn Close, Michael Douglas were in Fair Attraction, Sharon Stone, Basic Instinct. Um, I feel like I'm sure people would say Basic Instinct is not made without Fatal Attraction coming first. But I feel like Basic Instinct was one of those movies that was like a cultural zeitgeist at the time. Like it was like a huge deal. Which, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, again, we'll get further into that when we talk about it, but you're not wrong. So I just think like between the two, especially like super popular. Yeah. Like most, I feel like these are movies most people have seen. Mm hmm. You know, and now you can count yourself among those most yeah. people. And to be honest, <laughs> like I said, completely well aware of them, but would I have taken the time to sit down and watch them both without this? Probably doubtful, you know? <laughs> so, happy to be here, Mills. <laughs> I'm happy to be right there beside <laughs> you. Uh, movie number one? Please. All right, from 1987, we begin with Fatal Attraction. I don't know what you're up to, but I'm going to tell you it's going to stop right now. No, it's not going to stop. It's going to go on and on until you face up to your responsibilities. What responsibilities?! I'm pregnant. I'm going to have our child. Alex, that's your choice, honey. That has nothing to do with me. I just want to be a part of your life. Oh, this is the way you do it, huh? Showing up at my apartment! What am I supposed to do? You won't answer my calls. You change your number. I mean, I'm not going to be ignored, Dan. You don't get it. You just, you don't get it. Don't you remember our weekend? It wasn't that wonderful. Why can't we just be like that again? I know you feel it, too. I mean, what are you so afraid of? (laughs) Just don't flatter yourself, Alex. Go ahead, hit me. If you can't fuck me, why don't you just hit me? You're so sad. You know that, Alex? Lonely and very sad. Don't you ever pity me, smug bastard. I'll pity you. I'll pity you because you're sick. Why? Because I won't allow you to treat me like some slut you can just bang a couple of times and throw in the garbage? I'm going to be the mother of your child. I want a little respect. Interesting thing about this one. The director's name is Adrian Line. And I was only like sort of aware of this guy. But the name jumped out at me because not terribly long ago, on the last episode, we talked about him because he was the director originally attached to do Stand By Me. Oh. And... So in his filmography, uh, he's got Flashdance, which is one that I've never seen, which I feel like is a 
you know, a hole in my viewership, yeah, a same. Wall of Shane movie, potentially. He did Nine and a Half Weeks, which um, was a Mickey Rourke movie, also kind of an erotic thriller that uh, Jesse and I did a review of on the Sidetrack podcast some years ago. He did Jacob's Ladder, which you and I watched for this mm-hmm. show. He did Indecent Proposal, which I've also not seen, but, you know, that movie has a, uh, a, a reputation. Yep, I have seen that one. Uh, he did a remake of Lolita, which, again, don't know a ton about it, but I know the reputation. And then he did a movie called Unfaithful, and he did Fatal Attraction. So it sounds like he does a lot of these, like, dark relationship movies. Mm-hmm. And Stand By Me, you know, it is it does have that, like, dark undertone, but it really feels like he would have been the wrong person to make that. Yeah, yeah. I see that being the correct way that should have played out. But I just thought that was interesting when his mm-hmm. name popped up, and I was like, oh, we just talked about him. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, so I think I had seen this one time before and uh, was a fan of it. Didn't remember the finer points of it. But, um, I mean, I think people probably know it's about uh, Michael Douglas is like a happily married man, but his wife and daughter go away for the weekend and he ends up, you know, giving into temptation, having like a fling with Glenn Close's character who seems like a normal person and then turns out to definitely have some kind of personality disorder or something. Uh, I feel like any, any terminology I try to use to describe it, I'll be wrong, (laughs) but, um, fair. Yeah. In, you know, thriller movie terms, she becomes a psychotic obsessive. Yeah. And begins to tear Michael Douglas's life apart. But, um, Mm -hmm. as a first time viewer, uh, what did you think? Where do you, where do you stand? I find myself, well, it's interesting. I think it's a compelling story and, you know, to watch, I mean, she plays the role fantastic because it's, it is really like to watch the story play out and then like she's seemingly unraveling, you know, it's ruining his life. I, I have zero sympathy for him because he's a rotten bastard in the movie, but yeah. Um, I do find the story compelling. I mean, he, you know, it's a pretty much a prime example. Like he made his bed. Now he's got to lie in it and it just turns into like a really horrible, <laughs> like worst case scenario situation all around. But, you know, again, like he's, I feel like he's doing all the heavy lifting at, you know, he doesn't seem like, uh, he, uh, really put in any time to think over his decision before he got down with her, you know? Yeah. So, uh, it just, uh, it, it kicks off pretty quickly. I mean, she slits her wrists. What in the, at, in that first weekend? Yeah. I mean, he hasn't even like left her side really. Yeah. They but spend to, like, like two to days together. Yeah. Yeah. They spend two days together. He's basically saying it's without putting in the exact words. He basically tells her it's a fling. This is over. I got a family to go back to. And then she, uh, yeah. Attempts suicide. And uh, it goes horribly for them all from there. Yeah. It's like, it's a, I don't know, it is a weird case because he's definitely that kind of like New York, full of himself, yuppie lawyer mm-hmm. character. Yeah. Like 80s, just like, he's not in Wall, on Wall Street, but he feels like that kind of character. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it feels like he believes that, like, the world is his oyster and, you know, he can do whatever right. he wants. And it right. sucks even worse because um, his wife, played by Ann Archer, seems like such a 
like fantastic, lovely person. I mean, they. I don't know if that's perfect casting. I'm not entirely familiar with her. Maybe you know, looking at the her IMDb, I might have known some other things. But just based on just this, like perfect casting because you kind of nailed it. She's like seemingly like this guy's dream wife, and he still throws it all away. Yeah, I mean, she's like so lovable and like she's gorgeous and, and she's yeah, caring, she's gorgeous. Yeah, the they whole... have a family together, and yeah, yeah so like. Yeah, you know, he makes this, like, bad decision, but, like, in the moment when it happens, you know, it the way Glenn Close plays it or the way her character is, like, when they kind of make the decision, it feels like two, like, consenting adults choosing to do this thing, and, like, he doesn't hide the fact that he's married or anything oh, like yeah, that. Oh, yeah, she's well aware. Like, not, not, not admonishing him of guilt or anything, but, uh, yeah, it's just, like... This situation that, you know, it would have been easy enough to just not go forward and then none of this could have happened. But it seemed like, I'm sure to him, it was going to be a... Um, a fling. Yeah, like a an easy, easy come, easy go. Oh, yeah. She plays it as like... Victimless you know. crime almost, as far as yeah. the people who know that it's even happening. <laughs> I mean, she starts, I mean, she's definitely flirty with him and the whole thing. So it does present itself like you, there's no red flag well, from what they show you in the movie. That's going to go bad until like whatever yeah. day two. And then it it's just that turn when it happens, like I've never been in that position, but I've definitely been in situations where it's like you're in it. And something has gone wrong before you even really have time to process it. And like reality has to set in that like, mm -hmm. you know, he thinks, oh, I'm just going to put my pants on and we're going to part ways. And maybe we'll see each other again sometime because we work in the same industry. Or maybe I'll call her the next time my wife's out of town or something. But as soon as he tries to leave, it's just like all of a sudden there's just this weight because <laughs> mm -hmm. she's not reacting the way that he expected her to. And like. Yeah, I definitely I've, I've I've been in situations before that are at least in a manner of speaking comparable. So yeah, it's just there's this guttural reaction in that moment <laughs> when oh, I yeah. forget like her first line, like she he's putting on his pants or something, and she rolls over in bed and kind of half insulted says like I don't like this or something, and it's just like uh oh, this is the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if that's the exact line, but it is something, something like along. That. And it's like, oh, she's nope, she's catching feelings and it's going to get out of control fast. Yeah. You know, throwing a little pregnancy action. Never good. Oh, man, that's the thing, though. Like, was she really pregnant? I I like that they leave it up to you. I know. To not I really want to know. But man, they, they never say for sure. I feel like the modern version of this, they're absolutely either telling you right away that she's faking it or you find out in the end because yeah. they don't want to make the wife look bad that she just, you know, shot and killed a pregnant person. Yeah. In this <laughs> version, they don't care. Modern version, they were absolutely would have, yeah. you know. I feel Either like, revealed right before or right after that she wasn't actually pregnant. I feel like that idea also is pretty out there these days, um, like people taking advantage of one another or like even people going to prison 
or, or even just like the advent of like TV shows where they're doing like paternity tests, like on television and, and doing like the reveals and stuff like that. I feel like it's something that people would be much more conscious of nowadays, mm-hmm. but like back then they, yeah, they just decided to keep it vague and um, man, I want to know, like, I think he does mention that he called a gynecologist at one point, but like he they... does say he called the doctor and the doctor said, congratulations. So yeah. again, they don't, you know, they could have easily said like, oh, that was a fake number she gave or it could have been any number of things, but yeah. So I'm okay that they don't like really circle back to that part because it just makes it feel like yeah more of a product of its time. But yeah, I mean, they ramp up the tension and like, it's such a fantastic moment when like she won't stop calling and then he changes the number, but Mm -hmm. they're in the process of moving like upstate, like out to the country. And uh, so they're like showing off their apartment to potential buyers. And then he comes home and she Mm -hmm. has shown up and she's there with his wife, like pretending she's interested in the apartment. And yep. he knows and she knows, but the wife doesn't and neither yeah. of them say anything. And then when uh, she's about to leave, the wife gives her the new phone number so she can contact oh. him about the house. And just that look on his face of like, God damn you. <laughs> it's like, gosh, like such a good moment. He plays it really super cool, which is probably good on his part, too, because like you could see someone like different actor unraveling at every turn. You yeah, know, he's really trying to keep his composure. I think he probably even thinks he he, he can get out of this, mm-hmm. you know, eventually. Oh, I think but, at every turn he thinks he can get out of it until he actually has to tell his wife because uh, the the rabbit gets murdered. <laughs> dude, I mean, they mentioned the rabbit a couple times, and then the, I mean, once the especially once the rabbit shows up, I'm like that that bunny is toast. <laughs> I mean, they're smart not to kill the adorable dog because, you know, there's no really coming back from that with movies. Kill a dog. It's a problem. (laughs) I mean, John Wick works because it's revenge for the dog. So that's why it's so that one's so strong. But, yeah, they're uh, they were smart to introduce a different (laughs) furry mammal to be one with less personality. Pretty much. Because, I mean. I think even that scene where like they show the bunnies like outside and you, there's like a certain there's a couple times in the movie too there's like a, they do a really good job with like building the tension in the scene like cutting back and forth and you like you know like something's going to happen but you don't know what mm-hmm. man when they cut when the the mom's she goes to the, whether she just comes home and the the friggin pot is boiling over because there's the rabbits in there. Spectacular. I mean, Glenn Close, she kidnaps the daughter. I mean, she does everything. In yeah. Mm-hmm. No holds barred, Mills. Absolutely. Did you know about the rabbit thing? I feel like that's kind of the infamous scene in the movie. Oh, that, no. That... I, I knew nothing of this movie besides who was in it. Yeah. I feel like even before I saw the movie, I had heard that, like, somebody boils a rabbit. <laughs> oh, shit. No. And uh, I saw an interview with Glenn Close where she was saying that, um, in the UK, she was like over there doing press or something, and uh, they referred to her as a bunny boiler. And apparently, that <laughs> phrase caught on in the UK as uh, 
like a slang term for like a woman who doesn't take any shit or something like that. Like, man, watch out for her. She's a real bunny boiler. Ooh, (laughs) that's some good history. Yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting. I like it. Yeah, small cast in this one. It's one of those movies where you don't need a ton of different people. Like, you know, the the Michael Douglas has like a friend played by four time appearance on Triple Threat Theater actor Stuart Pankin. Yep. Never going to remember his name. Who was in Arachnophobia, Congo, Striptease, and now this. And then, like, there's a cop who's in a couple of scenes, but, like, really it's just the the three actors and the daughter, for the most mm-hmm. part. Yep. You know, I I feel like it's pretty lean. I don't remember exactly how long the movie is, but uh, it never feels like there's unnecessary stuff yeah. happening. Or... It's, it's a good, it's a solid, like, two hours, too. Yeah. But it doesn't feel long. But, um... Yeah, the real question then is uh, the ending, the climax. How did you feel about that and the way everything wraps up? And um, I'm pre- pretty happy with, I enjoyed how the whole thing kind of panned out. And it's kind of, kind of like felt, I was like, I was like, I don't know. Like, how does this end? Because it's like, just, is he going to get got because he's a bastard? I was like, I didn't really know how it was going to shake out, so for the mom to be finally be the one to put her down was pretty wild. Yeah. I didn't remember that Ann Archer shot Glenn close, but I remembered that it had almost like a slasher movie ending with, uh, Glenn close attacking at the house with a knife. But I got to tell you, as I was watching it this time, uh, a little before that, when, uh, Michael Douglas goes and like breaks into Glenn close's apartment and they have that fight and they like struggle with the knife. The way that they shot it and edited it with him, like, he's holding a butcher knife that is hers and is in her apartment. And they focus the camera on his hand, putting it down on the counter. I was like, fingerprints. Yeah, same thing. And, like, I'm watching and then, like, the ending of the movie this time felt a little... That ending almost feels too typical for the kind of... uh, like intense thought provoking movie that it is. Yeah, like almost like this was the like uh the movie went before like a screening crowd and they didn't like the original ending, so they changed it to I watched the a special feature on my Blu-ray and that is exactly what happened. Oh no way. Yes. <laughs> so oh, shit. the original ending of the movie, which they have on the Blu-ray, it's less satisfying, but I honestly think it's a better ending because it's less typical. Hit me. So basically the mo- after his confrontation at her apartment, it cuts back to like uh, his house in the country with his family and they're like out raking leaves or something and the cops show up and they ask to talk to him and they reveal that she's dead and Michael Douglas is like, oh well I had nothing to do with it and the cops are like um well, you know, if I was going to kill myself, I wouldn't, like, slit my own throat with a butcher knife or something like that. And they haul him away. And then uh, as Michael Douglas is getting taken away by the cops, he, like, yells to his wife, like, go find whoever's phone number, like his lawyer or something. It's up in my office. And she runs up to the office and she's, like, hysterical and she's, like, trying to find this phone number. And she finds the cassette tape that uh, Glenn Close's character had recorded for him mm. that he plays in the car. Mm-hmm. And she sees it's from her, so she plays it. 
and we hear a part of the tape that they hadn't revealed before where she says she threatens to kill herself. And then Ann Archer, the wife, she like takes the tape and goes like running out of the house and yells to her daughter, like, come on, we're going to go get daddy back. And that's how the movie ends. But they actually do like show uh, her like listening to the Madam Butterfly music and slitting her own throat. It's like pretty dark and effective. But honestly, to me, I think that's the better ending and it feels like it suits the movie more. Wow. Yeah. I'm, uh, I like the ending I saw, but it is typical. Yeah. So actually to hear that. Yeah. And, that, and that, as soon as you brought it up, I remember that whole they're very. They focus on the knife so yeah, much they, for it to like not really come into play that he had touched it was a little yeah. surprising to me. But um, yeah, so they tested the movie and they said that like people were with the movie and reacting to it the whole time. And then like the last 15, 20 minutes, it was just like, you know, the the wind came out of the out of the sails. Mm -hmm. So they decided to go back and change the ending. And Glenn Close had like heavily researched her character with like psychologists and stuff. And mm-hmm. she fought against the reshoots when she read the script because it, again, it was just kind of like a slasher movie ending. Yeah. But uh, she, it, she apparently she fought back for like a week and like refused to do it, but then eventually relented for the good of the film. Huh. And uh, the movie on a fourteen million dollar budget went on to make three hundred and twenty point one million. Get the so, fuck out of here, really? Yeah. Fatal Attraction surprise <gasps> hit. Was number one at the box office for eight weeks and became the second highest grossing film of 1987 in the U.S. behind Three Men and a Baby. (laughs) And when taking into account, Worldwide Box Office was the highest grossing film released in 1987. Dude, people were ready for some naughty murder. Yeah, and so, you know, the change that they made, like that ending is like impactful and like I I think people like it. And it, it's interesting because the movie is much more of a drama than your typical, you know, dumb slasher movie. Yeah. But so I think it was like probably a lot of people who wouldn't normally watch some like corny horror film, like got to experience that kind of ending. But on a movie, they feel less embarrassed to admit that they like or saw. Mm. I kind of wonder if that's not part of it. Jeez, yeah. I mean, because like I mean, it's got the whole end. thing. You know, she he's he drowns her in the tub, and oh, then and she comes like back. That long lingering shot of him like yeah. sitting there, and then she like comes up out of the bathtub again. It's like totally cornball. It doesn't belong in the movie at all. But right. I mean, it, it's what people wanted to see. They wanted to see her get fucking blasted in the chest. Right, but they definitely, especially even if it the. The revive, you know, is is such a clear slasher movie thing that, yeah, even now just talking about it does definitely take it down for me a little bit because I'm like, yeah, God, that was just not that that feels like filmmaking by committee. Yeah, I'm okay with the ending where she shows up with the knife, she wants to kill some people, but when it's not to say it's better than the one you described, because the one you described sounds pretty good and does feel like it fits the movie better. I, I'm okay with this ending, but yeah, just that the extra revive. Like if you've drowned someone, they're not just going to suddenly pop up like that. Yeah, she just, just comes out of the tub like. <gasps> Wouldn't it be better if like the wife just walked over to the tub and just put a couple in her while she was underwater? <laughs> yeah, the like just in case. Yeah, but, but uh, 
Jeez, yeah. I mean, it's wild to think it made that much money too mm-hmm. off of that little budget. That's it was no huge. wonder it spawned a whole genre. It feels like. <laughs> yeah. It was adapted from a short film by the writer James Dearden, who also adapted his own short film for the movie. Uh, the producers had seen the short film and really loved it. And apparently the short film is like pretty much the movie as is, but it ends the first time Glenn Close calls the house or that character. Cause it was different actors in the short film. Um, like the first time Alex calls the house while they're like at dinner and uh, you know, there's that scene where like Michael Douglas is like looking at the phone kind of like, Oh, she keeps calling the office. What if that's her? Yep. And um, in the movie, Ann Archer, the wife, she walks over, picks up the phone, and, like, nobody answers. But the short film apparently ended with the wife's hand reaching for the phone. And, like, that was the end of the short oh. film. And they basically just extended it and were like, well, let's extrapolate. What else would happen in this yeah. scenario? Where where would this go? Yeah. And um, producers were also initially against casting Glenn Close because while she was known, she her prior roles had also had all been like wholesome, straight laced people. And they were essentially like, don't don't waste her time sending her in for an audition because she's just not right. But Glenn Close like really pursued the role and wanted to do it. And she apparently like blew everybody away in an audition. And they were like, all right, you're it. So I mean, she's a strong actor because, yeah, it's she's pretty compelling. Yeah. Yeah, she's good. She's believable. Yeah, she's scary. In as much as I have no experience in real life with people with these kind of issues, but, you know, Mm -hmm. she was convincing anyway. Oh, for sure. She's just scary. Seemed like she would do anything. Yeah. Which is pretty much what that role is. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, for a first-time view, I I, I did find it compelling. Again, my, my probably main thing was just like, you know, Michael Douglas is not a sympathetic character in this, but I guess that just adds to the, that adds to the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think the movie also got nominated for like six Academy Awards, didn't end up winning anything, but uh, Glenn Close was up for mm. best actress. Mm. I'm not sure who won, but uh, it feels like she was, you know, probably deserving either way. Mm-hmm. But yeah, box office smash, fatal attraction. Jeez. Wild. <laughs> Uh, shall we move on to movie number two? To the cultural phenomenon? <laughs> I mean, was Fatal Attraction not a cultural phenomenon, seemingly? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I was five <laughs> when that one came out, and I was only ten when Basic Instinct... I just feel like Basic Instinct was everywhere at the time. Yeah. Well, uh, coming up next, 1992, we do have Basic Instinct. Would you tell us the nature of your relationship with Mr. Boz? I had sex with him for about a year and a half. I liked having sex with him. He wasn't afraid of experimenting. I like men like that. Men who give me pleasure. He gave me a lot of pleasure. You ever uh, engage in any sadomasochistic activity? Exactly what did you have in mind, Mr. Corelli? You ever tie him up? No. You never tied him up? No. Johnny liked to use his hands too much. I like hands and fingers. You describe a uh, white silk scarf in your book. I've always had a fondness for white silk scarves. 
They're good for all occasions. But you said you like men to use their hands, didn't you? No, I said I like Johnny to use his hands. I don't make any rules, Nick. I go with the flow. Did you kill Mr. Boz, Mr. Trammell? I'd have to be pretty stupid to write a book about killing and then kill somebody the way I described it in my book. I'd be announcing myself as the killer. I'm not stupid. We know you're not stupid, Mr. Trammell. Maybe that's what you're counting on to get you off the hook. Writing the book gives you an alibi. Yes, it does, doesn't it? Uh, this is our third movie we've reviewed by Paul Verhoeven, and as of yet, we haven't talked about a single sci-fi movie. How weird is that? That is interesting. We've got this, we got Showgirls, and we got Flesh and Blood, which was uh, like oh. a medieval. Oh, jeez, I forget that was him. Yeah. Oh. Our boy Verhoeven. Mm-hmm. I think that was his first English-language film, Flesh and Blood, if I remember correctly. Oh, really? I believe so, because he was okay. a, you know, a director before he came to the U.S. with stuff like RoboCop. His first mm-hmm. big American mm-hmm. hit. But um, I know we talked about these guys a little bit in relation to um, Showgirls, but this was written by Joe Esterhouse, who also wrote Showgirls. And it's kind of funny because one of the things I read about this movie is that there was a bidding war for the script for this movie. Uh, mm-hmm. Carol Co. Pictures ended up buying it for $3 million, which was like a huge amount at the time. And it still seems like kind of crazy. Like, why this script? Why did this garner a $3 million buy-in on the script? But um, studio brought in Paul Verhoeven, and he wanted to make a bunch of changes to the script that Joe Esterhouse disagreed with. So Joe Esterhouse left the production. Oh. Like, just was like, all right, well, I'm done. I don't want to be a part of this if you're going to change my script. But then they worked together again on Showgirls. <laughs> I guess the movie made, like was so successful and such a big hit that they were like, well, we didn't get along very well, but let's see if we can repeat the you know lightning in a bottle. <laughs> were all those changes made from what you could tell? Uh, no. So they brought in Gary Goldman, who wrote Big Trouble in Little China, Total Recall, and Navy Seals. Uh, among other things, and they had him do rewrites, and he did. He turned in four different script drafts, and all of them Paul Verhoeven didn't like, so they ended up returning to Joe Esterhouse's version of the script, and from what I read, only made minor tweaks. Oh, okay. so it's still the movie that came out still ended up being basically Joe Esterhouse's version. Hmm. All right, yeah, I just thought that was funny. Like they argue, one of them leaves, and then they work together again a couple years yeah. later. Something uh, behind the scenes there. Yeah. But uh, coincidentally, Joe Esterhouse wrote Flashdance, which oh. Adrian Lin, or Line, uh, directed from the previous movie. For you, Millsy, it all comes back to Flashdance eventually. <laughs> I guess we'll find out someday. It's probably <laughs> in a trio for this show. It probably is. Yeah, so Basic Instinct, it's like a erotic neo-noir. Mm-hmm. takes place in San Francisco. Murder, ice picks, tons of sex and nudity. I mean, it starts off with a bang, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, infamous. Uh, so again, first time watch, uh, what did you think? Where do you stand? What's your take? Um, I do find it to be like pretty excellent. Um, <laughs> pretty excellent. Put it on yeah. the poster. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> I definitely got the whole like neo-noir vibe from it. And that... that that was pretty uh, telling for me. I was like, "This is." I was just like, "This is like feels like my kind of movie." It's 
lots of twists and turns. I like the cast. I think this is pretty early on from Sharon Stone. One thing I read, like she's not even like she doesn't even get like top billing with Michael Douglas on the poster. I believe it's yeah. Um, so I'm, she was like relatively unknown. I read a well, thing. She, she was in um Total Recall. She was actually in a bunch of stuff. She'd been working in the industry for like 10 years before this movie, but she was mostly in like B movies and smaller roles and like TV appearances. Mm -hmm. And then this was the movie that like put her on the map. And um, part of the reason she's in this is because Paul Verhoeven worked with her before, like you just mentioned on Total Recall. Mm. But the other reason that she worked on this movie was because she wasn't a big name and every big name turned them down because of the amount of nudity that they were required to do. So among others, name actresses who turned down the movie were uh, for the role of Catherine that she plays were Kim Basinger, which was their first choice. Julia Roberts, who I cannot imagine in this role. No. Uh, Meg Ryan, Michelle Pfeiffer, Gina Davis, Kathleen Turner, Ellen Barkin, and Mariel Hemingway, among others. And so after like 13 or 14 different people, it's like the producers finally listened to Paul Verhoeven, who was like, I got someone in mind who would probably be good. And then they went with Sharon Stone in this movie, like rocketed her to stardom. I mean, I'll say she's phenomenal in this. She is really good. Like she plays that character who's like sly and just like tricksy so well like right like she's like outsmarting it doesn't matter if there's one person or seven people in the room it's like it feels like she's outsmarting them all at once yeah talk about a femme fatale she is oh man she's awesome in this i was like blown away i was like again probably the oldest thing i've seen her in is total recall and then this, but man, I thought she was phenomenal in this. I was like so compelled every time she's, she plays like the range of emotion. Cause she's not just like icy, you know, murder queen throughout the whole thing. I mean, there's parts where she's breaking down and you don't, you don't know if how truthful it is. I mean, the, the thing for me is, is like, she is so good as that like icy murder queen or whatever that like in those scenes where she is being emotional, there is a part of me that's on guard the whole time. It's like, she's oh, yeah. is she acting, but that's just how fucking good she is. She yeah. really is great in this role. I mean that, and that just like calls back to like all our favorite stories. Like we've talked about on the show with just the, the movie magic, like she's not in this movie if Verhoeven's not attached so it's like just yeah, like no, that for sure ca- catching that lightning in a bottle is amazing like this just to think of like how certain things or certain movies will like define or start someone's career I mean she who knows what she would have done after this yeah or would have done if this hadn't happened. Yeah, so funny enough, I do have a little list here. Uh, Some notable things that she did before this movie made her a star is uh, she's in the movie Deadly Blessing, the uh, Wes Craven film. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's in Police Academy 4, Citizens on Patrol. (laughs) Nice. Uh, I don't remember her in this. I saw it for the first time not long ago, but she's in Above the Law, which I think is the first uh, Seagal movie. Jesus, is it? I'm above pretty sure. Wall? I'm pretty sure Above Nico? the Wall is the first yeah. one. Okay. Uh, she's in Action Jackson with um, Carl Weathers. Yeah. And then Total Recall and then this. And obviously went on to stuff like Casino. <sighs> pretty wild. Yeah. Um, she's phenomenal in this. I mean, I was like just very compelled. I mean, this is a movie like not 
they want you to think like, is she or is she innocent? I mean, they kind of think, did she do it? What did happen? I mean, you got Gene Triplehorn in there. Who, uh, Screen debut of Gene Triplehorn, by the way. Or, is it really? Yeah, film debut anyway. You know, while watching this, I was like, she looks just like one of the girls from Sisterhood of the Driving Pants. <laughs> to, where I, to where I was like, I didn't look it up. I was like, are they related? Because they look so much alike. But yeah, I thought she was great in this too. Um, I'm curious. How do you feel about the ending of this movie? Like, from the like the very end, like the reveal of the from the elevator murder on. I mean, in true noir fashion, uh, there's so many fucking twists and turns in this movie. It's like hard to keep what's going on and who is or isn't a uh, suspect at any time straight. Mm-hmm. To the point where I gotta be a hundred percent honest. While I like this movie a lot and I enjoyed it the whole way through rewatching it, like at some point I just had to throw my hands in the air and be like, "All right, I'm just letting it happen," because like. Sure, it could have been Gene Triplehorn who was the murderer the whole time. It's like she's claiming that uh, Sharon Stone was the one obsessed with her and Sharon Stone's claiming it was Gene Triplehorn who was obsessed with her and like almost a single white female kind of scenario. And mm-hmm. I mean, logic would say to me that it would be Gene Triplehorn who was the one that was obsessed, but I don't know, like the end of the movie with they, they pan down to the uh, the ice pick under the bed when he's in bed with Sharon Stone at the end. It's like, well, what the hell am I supposed to think now? She was the bad guy the whole time. Like, I guess that that's what they're insinuating, right? I guess. And I I don't want to say I, I hate it, but I, I dislike that final pan to the ice pick. Yeah. Just because like. I almost feel like it's not necessary because I I don't feel like it's it feels like so much more of a it's totally up in the air like you should all and you and you know he's Michael Douglas is like back with her like you 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 could end the movie feeling like I don't know what to think here and I think I'd be fine because when it almost feels like that final pan to the ice pick kind of feels like a cop out yeah in a little way because it's like story wise. Why is it there? Why is it just there? Was she really gonna about to kill him? And just she, she, if she was the killer all along, she got away with like the perfect scenario here. I mean, yeah, the perfect, like incredibly complicated, like unrealistically twisty, turny, like uh, con on everybody. Yeah. So I mean, it's not flat out clear that she did it based on that final shot of the ice pick. I mean, who knows if she just had it there now because of what had been happening. So it doesn't, it just, I mean, you know, we were just talking with fatal attraction about how it seems like one kind of movie. And then all of a sudden at the end, it feels like a slasher movie. And honestly, the pan to the, um, the ice pick at the very end of this feels like another horror movie trope of like, totally the one that jumps to mind for me is, uh, the theatrical ending of little shop of horrors, like they managed to destroy Audrey too. And then it cuts to uh, Seymour and Audrey and they're like happily ever after in their home. Mm-hmm. And then the camera pans down to their like flower bed. And there's a little Audrey too, like yep. there. And it's like, that isn't 
necessarily i mean that movie's also like a, a comedy it's it's not meant right. to be taken seriously but there's plenty of like horror sci-fi movies that oh, end like, like that uh, where like oh we killed the last creature and then like the camera pans down and there's an egg that's like moving like hidden in the hay in the barn or something we, you know we just watched the blob remake yeah like, yeah the, the, the priest the has it in a jar he's still yeah, got yeah. the jar with some of the blob yeah like it like in those cases it feels like okay the story's done and this is just like a little a little stinger at the end to leave people thinking maybe there will be a sequel. And I don't know if there was ever an intention like, yeah, we're going to make a sequel to this. But it just feels like one of those little stingers to like at the last second be like, gotcha. Or is it? Is she? You know, just yeah. like um, like at the end of the original Friday the 13th when like the, you know, uh, like all fucked up looking Jason as a kid like comes mm-hmm. up out of the lake and grabs somebody and it's like oh did that really happen or was that just a fun thing they threw at the end like that's what it feels like to me it also feels weirdly out of place unless the intention was to be like the whole time like oh you idiot audience member of course it was her but it didn't feel obvious to me I now because because the way it was just like under the bed you know she didn't seem like she was like clearly had a plan of what she was going to do it just felt like yeah like even, they felt like they had to put that in there. They couldn't just let it let it ride how they had it already. Yeah, even like you know, if if she was the killer, you know, the whole thing was she writes a book that has a murder that takes place with an ice pick, and then a murder incredibly similar to that happens, and she's a suspect, and it's like, oh. Uh, you know, would she have really done the same kind of murder that was in her book? And then it's revealed later on that one of her earlier books was about a kid who uh, kills the 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 parents just to see if they can get away with it by like meddling with you know their uh, private plane. And in real life, her two parents died in like a boat explosion. And it's like, oh, you know, she didn't like the little kid didn't kill the parents with an ice pick, so. Like, she's writing a new book about a detective, and she's using Michael Douglas's character as the inspiration for the detective. It's not like her M.O. as a killer, if she is the killer, is I always kill with an ice pick. So, like, why would she even have the ice pick? That right. even feels kind of, like, ham-fisted, you know? Yeah. No, it's I'm just, like, there's just ice picks all over the movie, and like that's why it feels to me, like, the way I read it was just, this is just a fun little stinger. Just for at the last minute before we cut the credits to be like, eh, you know, but it doesn't right. feel like the kind Which of movie I... that normally has an ending like that because it's not just like a corny monster movie or something. I almost like because like, you know, it seems like she's fidgeting with something before they pan down there. Yeah. I almost wish they just left it at that rather than showing the thing. It would it would have felt like freaking Inception or something where it's like you're waiting for the thing to <laughs> topple. And yeah. It was the same thing. Like, you don't know what, she, what was she doing down there? Was there a nice pick? Wasn't there? Mm-hmm. I like that better than just the. Yeah. Just happens to be nothing under the bed except an ice pick. Mm-hmm. A very fancy, nice looking ice pick. Does yeah. it ruin the movie for me? No. I think it would be stronger without it. But yeah, I mean. It's just for me. It's like she got away with the the perfect, perfect murder. Wink, wink. Um, so, do you think it was her, or I don't know. Like, not I mean, even like, taking the ice pick ending into account. Like, I don't think so because they make note of Jean Triplehorn showing up and saying she got a message from Sharon Stone, but yeah. then they they call back to saying they checked all those things and there was no record of a message so yeah there's no reason she should have been there 
Like for her to like, they drove out of their way to like see some person that should be completely unrelated to Gene Triplehorn. Mm-hmm. And then, like, the apartment that they were going to doesn't even exist. Gene Triplehorn happens to be there, and the right. the wig and everything is in the, the stairwell. Like, yeah, it feels to me like it. she had to have been the one. Yeah, just I mean, I that think so. Even more frustrating. Yeah, I mean, that's what I think, but, it, yeah, I just wish they could have. Or even if it was just, like, um, not so much focused, the very last shot, like, focused on sharon stone but like even on michael douglas like seeing something from him to be like does he what does he believe does he does he even know or is he you know is he scared but he wants to be with her anyway like, like i would have liked to seen more of that rather than just that if they were going to do something like the ice pick under the bed i think that a better way to do it would be you know that scene earlier in the movie where sharon stone comes to his apartment and he's got an ice pick and he's chopping up the ice and she's like here let me do it and she's chopping the ice and like he's watching yeah. her and she's like you like watching me do this don't you i think it would have been better if it like cut to them they're in his apartment or whatever and uh they're having drinks and again like chopping ice and almost like the scene in fatal attraction where they focus on michael douglas's hand putting the knife down mm-hmm. like if they show you a close-up shot of whoever it is him or her putting the ice pick down next to the ice and then they go to bed and like the camera pans back over and the ice pick isn't there anymore or something like I even yeah. feel like that's better. That is a little more vague or something. No, I think that's what it is. It's because it, it doesn't flat out apply any intention to why it's not there. That's more feels like more of like a wink to like, hey, what 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 happened? But yeah, rather than her just flat out having a ice pick under the bed. Yeah. Like not even hidden in the mattress. It's just, it's just flat out <laughs> like on the floor. Yeah. Again, I feel like, yeah, I don't want to dwell on it too too much. Because <laughs> oh, we've already dwelled on it. <laughs> I don't want to keep going, but just yeah. to say, I really enjoyed the movie. I love the style of this movie. I mean, it's just that, like, a lot of nighttime photography and, like, city stuff and, like, driving on windy cliffside roads yeah. and, like, A beach lot more car chases and... than I was expecting, too. Yeah. And apparently Michael Douglas did most of his own driving because he is like a, or at least was like a racer, like, like to drive oh. cars, like race cars. Huh. But yeah, like there's that part where uh, he is like driving because it's, you know, San Francisco has all those like hilly streets that it's kind of known for. And there's a part where like during the chase scene with Roxy, where he's driving his car like up some stairs, like on the sidewalk right. along the road. And apparently he did that and like. They did like a ton of takes of it, and he did like all of them, like himself driving up the stairs. Huh. Yeah, like I think he's really good in it. I think Sharon Stone's really good in it. Uh, I love. I'm gonna butcher the pronunciation of this name, but George Zunza, who plays Gus, the like chubby sidekick yeah. to bit of a that guy actor, Michael Douglas. Yeah, he he's in uh, the Deer Hunter, Crimson Tide, Dangerous Minds. His first ever movie was Massage Parlor Murders, which was put out by Vinegar Syndrome, and I watched recently, oh, okay. and it's fucking awful. <laughs> you know, that's the way those things go. Um, Jean Triplehorn, she was good. Uh, like I said, her first film role, uh, we've seen her previously in Waterworld. Yes. But this movie also is just like a murderer's row of like that guy actors, and something that I thought was funny as I was watching it a ton of people who appeared on Seinfeld. And I mean, Seinfeld ran for nine seasons and a ton of like that guy actors will have like one or two episodes on random shows like that. But uh, Mm -hmm. obviously there's Wayne Knight who played Newman on Seinfeld. Yep. 
he's in one scene, kind of a noteworthy scene with the leg uncrossing bit. But then um, the guy who plays the um, internal affairs agent who get they find his body shot and they think it might have been Michael Douglas. Uh-huh. He plays George's boss for like a season or two at the end of the, the series. Um, James Rebhorn is in there. He's just like a that guy actor's in a ton of stuff. He He's only in the movie for one scene, but he's like the kind of tall, thin, balding guy with like a big nose. Um, he was there when it's like Gene Triplehorn and like two other psychologists and they want to talk to uh, Michael Douglas and he basically tells them to fuck off and leaves. But he was he was on Seinfeld for like one episode at some point. Uh, gosh, I think there was another one as well. But uh, but oh, Stephen Tobolowski, you know from uh, Sneakers, he's another like that guy actor. He's oh, in Groundhog right. Day. He was also on an episode of Seinfeld. I just thought that was funny how many Seinfeld actors I, like I was it. noticing in it. I like it. But yeah, that scene with Wayne Knight and the uh, the interrogation. I would love if there was actually an interrogation room that looked anything like that in real life. I mean, <laughs> what an amazing look, like that steely blue yeah. with the shadows and everything. Like, where yeah. the fuck was that lighting coming from? Just like, what the fuck room was that? <laughs> I like to think that was all Verhoeven was like, oh, this is perfect. Yeah, gotta be, right? Yeah, for sure. It's like such an iconic look and everything, but... Yeah, crazy scene. I mean, I feel like that's been part of the the big legacy of this is that's been parodied probably a thousand times yeah they parodied it on an episode of seinfeld with newman oh really yeah like interrogating because newman on the show is he works for the post office and he's like interrogating jerry about something and he's like sweating and Mm -hmm. jerry's acting all cool and has like a a, like a cold drink and newman asks him for some and he won't let him have it (laughs) Uh, but, um, yeah, so that scene, like the scene that the movie's kind of known for where she uncrosses her legs, uh, Sharon Stone claims that, uh, she did not know what was going to be visible. Mm -hmm. So the way the story goes, and I, I even call this into question. She claims that she was wearing underwear in that scene and that Paul Verhoeven asked her, if she could take them off because they were white underwear and they were like reflecting the light with the low shot. And so she claims that she took them off because he said that there would be shadows. So you wouldn't be able to see anything. Uh huh. And one of the versions of this story that I read was that they were sitting next to each other in a theater, like for the premiere of the movie. And when she saw what was, you know, what everybody saw, she slapped him and left the theater. That mm. that's one thing that I read. Okay. Paul Verhoeven claims that that's nonsense, that that was always part of the scene, that they like, intended it to be that way because it was like meaningful to the plot or whatever. One of the reasons I don't 100% buy what she says is because in the prior scene, when Michael Douglas and his partner go to pick her up to take her to the interrogation, he sees her naked like she goes to change and he like kind of walks and like sees her through a like a big glass door or something Mm -hmm. and she's completely nude and puts on the white dress with no underwear Mm. so like when was she supposed to have put on underwear that sharon stone claims her character was supposed to have i don't know Uh, that's just my interpretation of it because the way the movie's edited like i i could be completely wrong but i mean it seems like Seems like a weird thing to make up with her angle and then the whole 
slap in front of like, I feel like lots of people would have seen that or something, but yeah, but I don't know. Apparently yeah, don't... It, it was like what, however it went down, it was a point of contention, but they have since worked it out. And Sharon Stone has said in interviews that she actually thinks that it helps the scene or whatever, but I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it'd be, it would be pretty shitty to her not to be aware of that happening. So, I mean, that's... yeah, that's the thing that I find hard to believe that they would be like, yeah, we're going to, you know, put your genitals in the film without you knowing right. it. Yeah. That's pretty fucked up. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know what to think of that, but mm-hmm. I mean, it makes, it makes for the, yeah, it definitely adds to that compelling scene of just being like, she's do, does that in front of like eight dudes. Yeah. Knowingly. Like she's in complete control. It's like, uh, it's like in seven where it's like, don't, don't come here. John Doe has the upper hand. It's like, she has the upper hand the entire movie. Yeah. Like she, like every person that comes, she comes across in this movie is like putty in her hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's a great scene. I can't super yeah. iconic. Yeah. The film surprise, surprise originally received an NC 17 rating. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was changed to an R after Verhoeven cut 40 seconds of footage. So that big sex scene, the first sex scene between Michael Douglas and Sharon Stone, which seems to go on forever from a billion angles. And you definitely see this movie and Fatal Attraction. Actually, you see uh, silhouetted Michael's Douglas. (laughs) Okay. But like it's, an extremely like you know visually <laughs> stunning sequence mm-hmm. apparently it took like five days to film that can you imagine simulating that kind of sex for five days like completely no. nude how do you how do you by the end of day three are you still like oh we don't have enough <laughs> but apparently paul verhoven intentionally shot way too much footage for that scene because he knew it would be problematic made the scene longer than it needed to be so that when they came to him and were like, we need cuts, he could take stuff he never even felt he needed in the scene out and keep it the way he wanted. So I feel like you hear that kind of story an awful lot. And I'm beginning to wonder like, is this always true? But that's what I read. Man, it sounds kind of smart that, that sounds like playing chess when everybody else is playing checkers kind of thing. Like, yeah, I know that um, Matt Stone and Trey Parker have talked about doing that a lot with the censors on South Park where, they will have a joke that they think is really funny, but they're afraid the censors will cut it. So, like, the line before, like, the joke that they want to tell, they'll put something that's purposefully, like, there's no way they'll ever let that go so that they can then remove that thing but keep the mm. joke that they wanted. Apparently, they do that kind of stuff all the time, they've said in interviews. I mean, that's pretty smart. Yeah. So, I mean, that th- that kind of thing does happen. Gay rights activists uh, protested the hell out of this film because of the portrayal of bisexuals. Okay. I don't know exactly what their issues were with it, but uh, I also can't claim to, you know, be in a position to make that determination myself. Mm -hmm. But apparently during filming in San Francisco, they would gather around shooting locations, holding up signs that said honk if you love the 49ers to try and fuck up the audio in shots. (laughs) And then at theaters, they held up signs that read, Catherine did it, save your money. Nice. Which I would be pissed about if I was like a moviegoer. (laughs) I'd be like, okay, I support your guys' plight, but uh, (laughs) you're fucking with my entertainment. That and and also the flip side of being like, that's a level of petty I could get behind. (laughs) So good on them. Yeah, I would be curious like what's what level of 
you know, 1992, like how much bisexuality was being shown in popular culture. I think it was because like bisexuals in the film in general were viewed as villains or whatnot. Like Roxy is a bisexual in the film. She does try to kill Michael mm-hmm. Douglas and then Sharon Stone's character is bisexual. And even Gene Triplehorn's character admits to one time in college, you know, being with right. a woman and right. one or both of them is the villain of the film. So, I mean, <laughs> okay. I, I'm assuming that that's the, the issue, but I don't know. Apparently um, at different stages of the game, Michael Douglas's character was supposed to be bisexual, but he like put a stop to that himself. Like he didn't want that in the script. And then I Hmm. also read that at one point his character was supposed to be a bisexual woman or a a lesbian, maybe instead of a man. Hmm. But I mean, I read so many conflicting things like that. I don't know what to believe. Yeah. I mean, that just kind of adds to the, the confusing nature of the film. That or just the, the whole ambiance of the whole movie. I don't know. Yeah. What's uh I'm curious what's like the box office action here. Budget was 49 million, box office was 352.9 million. Okay. It sounds sounds expensive for 92 what they put into it, but It does actually, and I'm not 100% sure why if it was like location shooting or like Michael Douglas cost, I don't I don't yeah, really know, like, but what? I mean 3 million dollars also went to buying the script, so they were just throwing money around on this movie, but I guess but. Basic Instinct was the fourth highest grossing film of 1992 behind Home Alone 2 in third place, The Bodyguard in second place, and Aladdin in first place. Oh. So Aladdin, Home Alone 2, and Basic Instinct. What year was uh, T2? 91 or 92? 91 uh, must have been. Okay. I was going to say, I thought that made, was up there. Yeah. Huh. That's a lot of scratch to bring in yeah, for 92, 300 for sure. extra million. I mean, okay. sex sells, right? That's what they say. <laughs> uh, and I thought this was an interesting story that uh, when Steven Spielberg saw the movie, he liked Wayne Knight's performance so much that he waited through the credits to find out what his name was because he wanted to cast him in uh, Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park. And he was officially the first person cast for that movie. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, because of that. Of, of all things that got him the gig. Yeah, well, that was pretty cool. I love that. And uh, Basic Instinct 2 was released in 2006 to very little fanfare. Sharon Stone Ooh. returned. Nobody else did. And it made uh, $38.6 million on a $70 million budget. Shit. I would have put money on Basic Instinct 2 being like direct-to-video. Like, I... I knew it existed, but I can't believe it was theatrical. (laughs) I don't feel like I want to know anything about it, because I bet it's awful. Yeah. Does it reinforce our feelings about the final scene of this movie, or not? I don't know. Interesting. Yeah, I I didn't read anything about it, aside from how much it made, and who was Mm -hmm. in it. So Fair. All right. Uh, Anything else about Basic Instinct, or are we moving on to movie number three? Uh, Number three. All right. From... 1998, we have A Perfect Murder. You know, I envy you. You envy me? Oh, you should be flattered. I'm not prone to envy. It's a uh, pathetic emotion. Sneaks up on you like cancer. Now I've got it, and you know why. No. Oh, of course you do. 
one of life's legitimately sublime experiences. It's so utterly complete. What? Fucking my wife. Mr. Taylor, I don't know. I think maybe it's about time you called me Stephen. One love, sir. That's it. That's it. You steal the crown jewel of a man's soul. And your only excuse is some candy-ass Hallmark card sentiment. Even if it was true, that's not good enough! One more true. She is in love. You, buddy. You're in business. What the hell are you saying? I'm saying you did not meet my wife by chance. I'm saying... You didn't study at Berkeley. I'm saying you learned to paint while doing three to six in Soledad State Prison for relieving a widow in San Francisco of her life savings. Your second conviction, if I'm not mistaken. Your real name is Winston Lagrange, which I rather like. Born to pure trailer trash in Barstow, California. Ward of the court since the age of ten. Went from pickpocket to car thief to con man, till you found out that you had a way with a softer sex. No doubt looking for that mother you can barely remember. A life made up completely of depressing little scams. Until now. Did you get all that? All that is for sale, Winston. But the hell of it is that you're not half bad with a brush. Thank you. Call rehabilitation. It's called a con, and my wife is a grand prize, but you set your sights just a little too high this time. She loves me. She loves David Shaw, your invention. Not that it matters, because you made a fundamental miscalculation. Now you play it out. Love conquers all. Emily divorces me, she marries you. Given your history, her advisors are going to insist upon a prenup. So you might storm the castle, but you ain't getting the keys to the treasure room ever. I don't care about that. The petty swindler doesn't care about a trust fund that can buy fucking Barstow. Why don't you cut the shit? You care, or we would not be having this conversation. The only thing that stops you from bolting right now is bad genes and, and greed. Uh, this one's basically about uh, some rich people who suck. Yep. And uh, Michael Douglas is married to Gwyneth Paltrow, who I think is like 30 years younger than him <laughs> in real yep. life. And uh, they're very wealthy. And uh, he. They both are wealthy. Yeah. Like, separately. But especially her. Uh, she's yep. worth like 110 million, I think they say at one point. Mm-hmm. She is not happy in the marriage. So she's cheating on her rich husband with a starving artist played by Vigo Mortensen. Mm-hmm. And then Michael Douglas has found out that they're cheating and uh, basically wants like uh, the insurance money for Gwyneth Paltrow's death. So he hires the guy that she's cheating on him with to murder her and mm-hmm. offers him like $500,000 of the money if he does it. Correct. And then things get complicated. Very funny thing is I watched this movie not even realizing what it was. Uh, I mean, it's been a while since I've seen Alfred Hitchcock's dial M for murder, but I did not know that this was a remake of that. 
Uh, that's news to me, friend. Yeah, I've I've seen Dial M for Murder. It's probably been 15 or more years since. Mm-hmm. And um, I read a synopsis of it just to jog my memory. And it it's more like this is the same premise, but like the movie's almost entirely different. Okay. But uh, yeah, when I read that, I was surprised. Oh, all right. Yeah, it's like a loose remake. Like the one, like the, the main similarity is that a rich guy wants hires someone to kill his wife and uh a a misplaced key is like an important plot device that's yeah. like the only gotcha. real similarities but yeah like you said uh i guess it kind of um hedges on con- him convincing vigo to follow through with it but mm-hmm. he basically is going to expose vigo as a a con man which I don't know if it ever does the movie ever really tell you if he really is still a con man or he is trying to just like be a legit artist. I mean, he ends up going for the deal. So, I mean, he is a bastard. I mean, Michael Douglas does have like paperwork on him. The thing that says to me, yes, he really is a con man is that, um, you know, when Michael Douglas threatens him, he, you know, decides to go along with the deal. Uh I mean, that's not to say that. Vigo doesn't actually love Gwyneth Paltrow's character and like, you know, yeah, I'm a con man who like takes rich women for their money, but this time it's real love. Like, I don't even know if it was that. It doesn't feel like it because he agrees to go along with it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, okay. I'm with you. Yeah. This is another one, man. Fucking twists and turns like left and right. Another movie with a relatively small cast. You basically just have Michael Douglas, Gwyneth Paltrow, Viggo Mortensen, and a cop. Yeah. I mean, there's pretty, like, few locations as well. Yeah. A lot of it is in uh, their, like, fancy-ass apartment. Their super fancy apartment or, like, Viggo's illegal loft apartment. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Mills, this was your first viewing. Yeah. Uh, Tell me all about it, please. I... This is one of those movies, this happens every now and then, where, like, as I'm watching it, I'm, like, fully into, like, all the twists and turns, and, like, it's got me, you know, and I'm like, Mm -hmm. where's this going to go? How's this all going to shake out? Oh, I didn't see that coming. And it's like, I enjoy myself. As soon as the movie's over, it almost feels like a like a a tasty morsel that didn't have any real like protein in it or something Mm. when the movie's over like thinking back on it it feels kind of like dumb and surface level that's not to say that i didn't enjoy it and it's got like good performances and it definitely had me riveted so like i'm not trying to take anything away from it but like uh basic instinct is incredibly complicated like we talked about but it feels like it's a stylistic thing in that it's a neo noir and noir movies always have like tons of twists and turns and backstabbings mm-hmm. and things like that and i guess in a manner of speaking you could say the same thing about this kind of mystery thriller because you know a lot of hitchcock stuff just has like crazy twists and turns as well uh stuff like um north by northwest and 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 things like that but um this one it's like there's so many like leaps in logic like when michael douglas shows up on the train in like a fucking dexter plastic suit to murder vigo mortensen like i know that he got the phone call in vigo's loft about like what uh train he was taking but for him to just like show up and quietly murder him and then it just felt really corny to me (laughs) You know, 
There, I feel like there's mm-hmm. little things like that throughout the movie that undermine it a little bit, perhaps. Mm-hmm. All right, that's fair. Um, I'm uh, pretty compelled to agree with you. Yeah. I think. This is at least the second time I've seen this, maybe even the third, but um, it's, you know, it's 1998. Like, it's got that, like, look and feel, even of, like, the I, you probably more so than me, like, we'll talk about, like, just movies of the time and, like, enjoying, like, kind of, I guess, like, the vibe it gives. I mean, it's so, nostalgic because, you know, I was born in the 80s. I love 80s vibes, but also I grew up in the 90s, so I can't get away from the fact that that's a nostalgic era and like the yeah. look and feel of like big budget movies from that time period does something for me totally. that I can't deny. Yeah. And like so much of this, like it doesn't, not that anything needed VFX or anything, but just like, it's just a, this is like a straight thriller. I do think it kind of like falls apart a bit for me. And every once in a while, I'm like good to get like hung up on some, some dumb small detail oh, or something. Boy. Um, it's just the key. Yeah. The, just how it plays out with the key and like, I don't know. I, I just kind of hate that the, the, the murderer guy just has his one own loose house key in his pocket, which to <laughs> me is just like serial killer shit. Like, why would you just have your one key you need is just loose in your pocket. Yeah. That's like, I knew somebody that like didn't back in the day, didn't have a wallet but just had their cash and all their cards in a binder clip in their pocket. And I'm like, why don't you just get a wallet? <laughs> this, it's like just someone that would, yeah, I have a house key. Oh, it's just a loose key. I keep in my pocket. It's just like, that's just <laughs> a single key. Yeah. yeah. That's just like, is so nonsensical that, and basically the entire climactic action and the, you know, the ending is so hedged on that key and what happens with it. That it kind of, I don't know if I ever really had a hang up about it other times I've seen it, but this time for sure, I was just like, so much is like hanging, hanging on by that, the business with the key. That I feel like it's just not. I do think that that's like a cool wrinkle for a movie like this where, you know, she's got the key, she's got the killer's key on her key ring and doesn't know how it got there. And like her key was missing or whatever, but like less than the random single key in his pocket that you're hung up on. The thing I was thinking about more in the movie is at the very end, when he realizes that the keys have been mixed up, he goes out like the service entrance Mm -hmm. to look for his little hidden key thing to see if the key's there. And I'm like, as methodical as this guy is, he didn't check that days ago. Right. Like he waited until the climax of the movie to go out there and, and like either check and or remove the hidden key thing. Cause even if the key that's wasn't I mean. in there, that's still a piece of evidence that like, Oh, For I sure. had a little car hide a key thing on a pipe in the, the back room. Right. And it wasn't that great of a hiding spot. Like anyone could have just poking around, could have found that. And yeah. Yeah. Just like between that and, you know, I don't know shit, but I've seen enough TVs and movies to be like, dude, you got to have some forced entry here. So to just say like, oh, here's the key, but just make it, you know, scratch up the door lock a bit or something. <laughs> That'll look like a, a B&E. It's like that. Yeah. I mean, that f- the one thing I can say to that is uh, he told Vigo Mortensen to like bust up the lock and make it look like forced entry. But because everything went wrong, he just had to do it quickly. And just like scraped up the keyhole. Yeah, I just I don't I don't love it as a 
you know, here's the key, but make sure yeah. you bust up. I don't know. I just did. That I don't love. And actually the same with the, when he shows up on the train as Patrick Bateman or whatever to, uh, yeah, that I really could have done without that. Like, I don't know how else that they, like, if nothing else, Vigo could have just disappeared, like, into the wind. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just Michael Douglas just appearing on the train wrapped in plastic to stab yeah. Vigo to death. I just. Yeah, it's like, where do he had enough time to get the plastic? He How would he know what cabin? It's like, yeah, he was there. He heard the call about his reservation. But like you said, it doesn't doesn't put Michael Douglas in the right place at all. And he had to have that like plastic suit. Like he didn't have that yeah. lying around. He had to like go no, run I mean. to a like a paint store and buy that or something. Like, it's just yeah. that was the point in the movie where like there's a lot of twists and turns happening, but I'm like hanging on. And when that happened, I was like, okay, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this has gone a little too far for me. That feels like a little too like illogical just there for the shock and awe of it in the movie which is like something i hate Mm -hmm. so that coupled with the just that key business i just it'll just bother me but yeah not to say this is a bad movie so that's certainly not what i'm saying i think it's a highly entertaining film it is it's just like i said it's like i feel like i'm in the grip of the movie while i'm watching it and then as soon as it's over and i start to think back on it i'm like hmm it's not as tight as I think they wanted it to be. Especially when, like, stacked up against the other two. It's like... Yeah. It doesn't really compare. I do think the... I mean, it's got three leads. I mean, pre... I always like to see anything with the pre-Lord of the Rings, Viggo Mortensen. So, <laughs> I think he's good in this. And Gwyneth Pratch was pretty young. I think I looked it up. She's like 24, 26 or something in this. Mm. But I think she's quite good and Michael Douglas again. He he plays a rotten bastard pretty well. So, yeah. Acting, production, everything wise of the movie, I think is pretty solid. It's just um, yeah, those bits of script and those bits of story. Just, I feel like he could have done you know, figure out some other way. If you're gonna have him kill Vigo, do something better than you know leaving a murder that's gonna be investigated now. You know, like push him down some stairs or something. I don't know. (laughs) Anything better than showing up in the plastic wrap to stab him on a, you know, somebody's going to find him with a knife in his belly and then they're going to start looking into that. So it's like, yeah, I just didn't that. Yeah, that seemed like, like I said, that felt like more. I mean, yeah, if he shock in the theater, if he knew that Vigo was going to be going to the train because he heard the phone call or whatever, instead of like having the time to go get like a plastic jacket and uh, and everything Mm -hmm. it would have almost made more sense like you just said if he followed him to the train station and pushed him down a set of like stairs into the subway or or like pushed him onto the tracks when no one was looking in a big crowd or something you know 100 percent. because they're just like now be it's just like a sure you covered your suit up but it's like still like a sloppy murder someone's gonna find him dead you know, they can connect dots to him to, you know, somebody looks into it enough. Mm-hmm. Just seems, yeah, not not great. Not great script-wise. And then, I don't know what exactly, but I feel like I could probably come up with a better a better way to have the key make sense. At least for me. Yeah. For my own selfishness. <laughs> but <laughs> Yeah, and then, like, um, everything building up. Th- this is a movie that's all just like a... It's kind of like um, Fatal Attraction, where it, the movie's like a battle of wits. 
And then for it to just end in like a, you know, people d- struggling in like a domestic situation, like trying to kill one mm-hmm. another what feels a, a little, eh, and you know, it's, it's pretty brief in this, but then just for a gun to just come out of nowhere, like there's no use of a gun. There's no threat of a gun. And then I feel like right towards the end, there's like a close up of Michael Douglas opening a drawer and there's a gun in it so that we have like, you know, a reason to, yeah. Reasonable doubt to believe that there is a gun in the house that she could have had to shoot him. And yeah, it feels all very abrupt, I think, at the end. Yeah. And it's like blinking, it's over. I read that there is also an alternate ending to this movie where it's basically the same exact conversation and she does end up shooting him, but there's no fight, like no struggle. She just blasts him. Yeah. It, it almost, it sounds like it would have been maybe more interesting where it's like they're, almost calmly talk like having an argument or whatever about the whole situation. And then I think the other thing was like, she, she shoots him in the alternate ending and then she like hurts herself somehow to make it look like self-defense. Like that almost then turns her into like a scheming person instead of a victim. But at the end of the day, she's safer if he's dead, no matter what. So I don't know if I would care as much, but yeah, the whole thing just turning into the two of them, like, like she's cr- trying to crawl away and grab a gun, and he's, like, struggling on the floor to hold her back. and It, it just feels like it kind of comes out of nowhere. Just like him yeah. stabbing Vigo on the train, I don't know. Yeah, I'm with you. It feels like that was... Something's like, oh, somebody's got to come and punch up this script for audiences. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That type of shit, so... Uh, like I said earlier, not a whole lot of uh, details on this one. Basically, my one big thing that I found while reading about it is that it's a remake that I didn't even realize. Mm-hmm. Uh, budget for this one's sixty million. Again, like, does Michael Douglas just cost a lot? I mean, seems like a lot for ninety-eight. Yeah, like, what did they do in this movie aside from like talk and? talk i mean <laughs> like there's no yeah, unless it's just like on location new york was expensive or something i guess i mean they're not even like you said like the loft the uh, vigo's loft i'm sure the interior of that was a set i'm sure the interior of the apartment was a set or i i can assume it was maybe not but then you know like the subway uh there's like one or two scenes in restaurants, some walk and talks in the street. Maybe it doesn't feel like it should have cost that much. Like there's no. nothing. Yeah. It was a big food service bill on this one or something. Yeah. Like there's not even a car chase in this one. Like there is in, in <laughs> right. basic instinct. Uh, yeah. I don't, I don't know. It, that was a little surprising, but uh, uh-huh. yeah, $60 million budget, 128 million box office. So not bad. Not bad. Not great, but still doubled. So, I mean, that's, yeah, that's a success. And of note, uh, directed by Andrew Davis, who also gave us a Code of Silence with Chuck Norris, mm-hmm. Above the Law and Under Siege with uh, Seagal, mm-hmm. The Fugitive, mm. Chain Reaction, which is a Keanu Reeves movie that I uh, have a weird connection to, <laughs> and uh, Collateral Damage with Schwarzenegger, which we've already talked about oh. on the show before, so... I feel like I should know him better, but he's just got such a throwaway name. I feel like that's like there's probably one or two other things in his career as well, but like, you know, Under Siege kind of big, The Fugitive huge movie, 
But then, like, you know, Collateral Damage, yes, he did a Schwarzenegger film, but it was, like, one of the lesser-known, lesser-cared-about later movies. Code of Silence is not, like, the movie that Chuck Norris is known for. Above the Law, you know, again, kind of forgotten by most people as Seagal's first movie. Chain Reaction, a movie that nobody remembers except for me, seemingly, so. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, he did, he's done some solid stuff, but, you know, I feel like he's one or two more hits away from being a household name. Yeah, really. I even just, I feel like just, uh, he's like the one person no one talks about when it comes to The Fugitive. Yeah. Because I feel like that that was huge for everybody. Mm-hmm. That's always the thing where like when I hear his name, I'm like, he's the fugitive guy. Hmm. <laughs> but. All right, all right. I'm also a movie nerd, so. Oh. <sighs> Amen to that. <laughs> all right. Uh, shall we talk posters? Please. So. Fatal Attraction very purple i'm not sure why but uh, i think the color scheme works that mm-hmm. bolt of red down the middle yep it does give this along with the uh blurb here on the other side of drinks dinner and a one night stand lies a terrifying love story uh, i don't feel like that fits the movie because it doesn't really feel i don't know if i mean it even feels weird calling it a love story <laughs> Well, calling it a love story and a one-night stand, I mean, you're leaving out even the photo. It's like cutting them in half. Like, this looks like a photo a couple would take where it's like, (laughs) it's not exactly what's going on here, but. Yeah. um, Yeah, that's an interesting point. If you don't know the movie, it's it's maybe, it it makes you feel a little more like a uh, Kramer versus Kramer situation where, like, they're a couple and they're getting a divorce or something. Right. Yeah. It's not like like lying conniving bastard husband yeah he has a one night stand with someone he doesn't know mm-hmm. but yeah call it like a <laughs> lies a terrifying love story so it's like after all this stuff i mean there's nothing about the the fallout of that one night stand that i would think is a love story but yeah i mean in glenn close's character's mind maybe but maybe yeah to call this a love story is completely mm. wrong I just like the overall vibe of the imagery and whatnot, though. Yeah, like, I actually like, the, and I like it's not too like um, straight on shots of either. Of yeah, them. I was gonna say that it's like there's two big name actors there, and yes, it has their names right above their heads, but like at a glance, you, you can't even recognize either of them because yeah. of the way their heads are turned. I do like that. Yeah, I like the bright red tearing down the middle of the image. Mm-hmm. I feel like the purple's a bit weird with the red. Yeah. I think it's better than just a, like black and white, though, maybe. Mm, I don't know. I'd almost want to see it myself, but... Yeah. I feel like the title is kind of small for no good reason. And sideways or, or skewed for no reason either. Like, I like the, you know, the style of it, the yeah fonts the... and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, no, that's pretty good. But yeah, all in all, I mean... I like this one. I do, I do agree that the uh, the the quote, the tagline is a little weird. Yeah, doesn't fit exactly, but not not a terrible poster. Yeah, I like it. It works. Basic instinct. This feels like it's like a icon iconic thing on its own. Yeah, like the one I usually go to IMDb just figuring like the main poster is going to be the first one, but the one on IMDb was not this, and I was like, okay. There have been times where I'm just more familiar with, like, box art or something, but I did a little looking, and even Wikipedia 
says that this is the theatrical poster. Yeah. So I went with this one because the other one I had never seen. It was a nice looking poster, but I'd never seen it. It was. I saw it too, and it looks like it looks modern. It even has like them both build on the poster, which doesn't fit the time. So yeah. it makes me think it's like a modern poster. Well, something that I was going to say earlier, and then we got sidetracked when you mentioned, I think you mentioned that uh, Sharon Stone's name isn't above the title with Michael Douglas's on the poster. Um, yes. I read a factoid that Faye Dunaway criticized Michael Douglas for not letting Sharon Stone's name be above the title. Now, I don't mm. know if he had any actual input in that, we have mm-hmm. definitely talked in the past about instances where prima donna actors do make a big stink about whose name goes where on a poster or like in the yeah. credits or whatever. But I'm almost wondering if it's just because she wasn't a name anybody would know. Like, not that it has to matter because she's like a co-lead of the movie, so her name probably should be up there. But mm-hmm. based on that quote and then seeing this poster and her name's not up there, I was like, this has to be the theatrical original. Yeah, yeah I think so, too. I agree. It's a good poster. A brutal murder, a brilliant killer, a cop who can't resist the danger. I mean, it almost insinuates because of the brilliant killer part that it is her <laughs> right there on the poster. Or that's, yeah, they definitely want you to think that, of course, especially with her look and her, her hand, like clawing at his back. Yeah. No, I like this poster, actually. I like a lot of negative space and. Again, it's not like super clear views of their faces like him. You know, it's a profile so you can tell plainly who he is. But like Mm -hmm. a lot of her face is hidden. Yeah, no, I I think this one works good. Another good title. Never occurred to me until just this moment that the eye and instinct is probably meant to resemble a ice pick. Oh, of course. But it's interesting. Both Fatal Attraction and Basic Instinct, two word titles where the first word is red and the second word is either black or gray as it were Mm -hmm. yeah no and uh definitely connected yeah but uh yeah i like this one too yeah anytime you see the karoko logo on a poster it's a good time (laughs) for sure and then uh perfect murder definitely feels more modern and yeah this is your late 90s photoshop Photoshop collage kind of thing unnecessary skyline yeah i feel like that is in a lot of posters where it's just like we got to put a piece of the city in there for some reason you gotta know where this is taking place yeah it just doesn't feel like there's a lot of focus it's like a big michael douglas head and then like a completely separate image of uh vigo and gwyneth Mm -hmm. they don't really fit together there's no connectivity there yeah it's all like orangey, muted yeah. colors. The M is in red for some reason. Maybe that's the dial M connection or yeah, something. Yeah, probably. Yeah, this just feels like uh, designed by committee a bit. A powerful husband, an unfaithful wife, a jealous lover. All of them have a motive. Each of them has a plan. Uh, yeah, I, a little, little too much. Uh, yeah, it's awfully. It's a lot. It's a lot of word salad there. Yeah. I mean, this isn't like terrible or anything. It's just, it's so samey the other things we've yeah, seen before. Just... It feels like it has no identity of its own. Right. This is like, hey, you like Michael Douglas? You like all the other sultry movies he's been in that have murder? <laughs> Come see this one. Yeah. We put, the, we put the word right in the title for you this time. Pretty much. Melzy Baby, break it down for the people. 
I like both Fatal Attraction and Basic Instinct. I'd probably give it to Basic Instinct just because it doesn't have that bad uh, tagline. Okay. I mean, the tagline on Basic Instinct, I also feel like, is completely unnecessary in this case, but... Uh, yeah, Basic Instinct, good, iconic, not my favorite thing in the world. I would give it uh, four uh, rock stars stabbed in the fucking nose in the opening scene of the movie. <laughs> Damn. All right. Line them up. How shocking was that to open the movie with dude getting stabbed in the nose like that? That was unexpected. Yeah. And then I was like, Verhoeven. <laughs> yeah. Fucking Verhoeven, man. Mm-hmm. He goes there. Uh, Fatal Attraction. I mean, I, I, I still like this one. I don't mind the purple. Uh, I like the way it goes with the red. Uh, the tagline is the real thing for me that I don't love because I feel like it just missells the movie. But I don't know. Is that enough to drop it down to a three? I think I'm still going to give it a four. I'm going to give it four Ooh. boiled bunnies. Oh, man. Too soon. <laughs> movie came out in 87, man. Get over it. All right. Fuck that bunny, then. <laughs> and Perfect Murder, not like the worst thing I've ever seen. Completely uninspired. I don't hate anything about it, but I don't like anything about it, really. Uh, it's going to be a two two keys swapped. Oh, damn it. <laughs> damn swapped keys. from the killer back. to Gwyneth Paltrow. All right. I like it. The kid's done it again. <laughs> Here you go. All right, Mills. Tis the, tis the witching hour. Yeah. Time to buy, borrow, and burn. Please. Shall I go first, or would you like to? Yeah, go for it. All right. Um, I really do like Fatal Attraction and Basic Instinct both. Uh, I, like I said, when it comes to Basic Instinct, I get like a little lost in the weeds with that one. I just love the vibe of the movie so much, and the performances are good. Mm-hmm. Fatal Attraction, I just think, is an incredibly solid movie with a great premise, really good performances. I think... The thing, it doesn't ruin the movie for me, but especially now that I know what the ending could have been, the ending drags that one down just a smidge for me. If it wasn't for the ending, if if Fatal Attraction had the better ending, like the, the original ending, mm. I mm-hmm. honestly think that would be my buy, but it's going to be my borrow. Mm. And Basic Instinct, I think... In this case, it's style over substance. I mean, I think that the movie has like an interesting plot and premise and everything, but uh, I, it's just the fucking vibe of that movie, man. And it's just like so well done, so well filmed, so well edited, you know, final um, ice pick shot notwithstanding. But uh-huh. uh, yeah, I just, I got to go with by for uh, Basic Instinct just because of, I mean, it's fucking Basic Instinct. Mm, bold choice. I like your style. And Perfect Murder, I don't think anybody was ever convinced that was going to be anything more than the burn for me, and I'm assuming you as well, but... Uh... Well, well, by all means, let me uh, <laughs> come on in and say Perfect Murder is an easy burn. <laughs> yeah. Um, stacked up against these other two, I mean, not a horrible movie by any means, but um, just not as high and tight as it should be for subject matter, plot i don't know budget whole thing yeah so um doesn't need to get tossed in the sun but maybe no i think we both said it's like an entertaining movie it's just not flawless yeah and you won't it's just in the end it's not nearly as compelling as the other two so 
Um, very similar to you coming down to the other two. I mean, I've got some likes and plenty of likes, a couple smaller dislikes on both. The vibe check, as the kids say on Basic Instinct, is just very good. Very just, it has a feel all its own. Yep. Fatal Attraction just, it feels like a classic movie. For sure. I think that's like, you know, like I said earlier, it feels like it that laid the the groundwork doesn't it kind of doesn't kind of feel like basic instinct like a tagline for that movie could have been this ain't your daddy's fatal attraction i mean pretty much yeah (laughs) yeah it's like or they'd be like oh this is we've perfected what you loved five years ago or something like yeah in the end honestly for me it comes down to i think sharon stone is electric in Hmm. basic instincts not even so much like the crazy or, you know, violent scenes or any of that, but just like how she like works the room, every room she's in, regardless of who's there. I think it's like, you can just like see it in her eyes. It's just like, I feel like the perfect casting. So Basic Instinct is my buy, and that would leave uh, Fatal Attraction as my borrow. Oh. Close one, but um, that's what pulled it away for me. Am I crazy or have we been matching up a lot lately? <laughs> I think this would be either four in a row or potentially five. <laughs> oh, yeah. We need some more divisive trios, apparently. One, two, three, hold on. This will be five in a row. No, four in a row. Wow. We, w- we did not agree on werewolf movies. Mm. But since then, <laughs> baseball, pirates. Uh, Stephen King. Stephen King's and... Central seduction, <laughs> murder. Yeah. Well, Bills, by all means, we should see what's coming up next. Yeah. Uh, can we make it five for five? Let's see. How many uh, delightful trios do we have to pick from? Well, sir, I'm not at the bottom of the list, but that number for you is 235. 235 potential themes. Here we go. Bills. Mm-hmm. Jeez, has this happened a lot before? 25. Oh. I feel like 25 has come up before. All right. Theme for next episode is going to be The Young West. I like. Uh, I feel like that's enough of a play on a popular phrase that people can get the concept. Uh, Mm -hmm. Whether anybody will actually guess the movies, I don't know. I've seen one of them. I have as well. Is it the middle one? It is. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Saw it in the theater. Loved it. Uh, so did I. We shall see. It's been uh, many moons. So I've seen it somewhat recently. But oh, all right. Yeah. The Young West. The Young West people. So which movies from early in Adam West's career will we be watching? Mm, we shall see, won't we? <laughs> well, Mills, until then. I'm Joe Daxberger. And I'm Ryan Miller. Thanks for watching. That was one of the finest movies I've ever seen. They ought to make them all like that. None of this nonsense about social matters. People don't go to the movies to see how miserable the world is. They go there to eat popcorn and be happy. Be happy, happy, happy.